So we're in our second week in Nehemiah. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Nehemiah. Uh, It's page 399 in the black Bibles under the chair. So if you don't have a Bible of your own, we've got some black Bibles nearby. And if you don't have one at home, you're welcome to keep that as well. It'll be page 399. Uh, It's kind of towards the end of the Old Testament, before the Psalms. You know, kind of the Psalms are in the middle. Got 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah. We'll be in uh, Nehemiah chapter 2 this week. And we've been calling the series Repairing the Ruins, um, trying to connect the dots that Nehemiah was called specifically to repair what was broken there in Jerusalem, because God's plan before Jesus was to preach his name and his fame through the people of Israel, through Jerusalem. That was the center point of God's great commission before the church. Uh, And so they have a similar calling that we have to broadcast God's goodness, to declare his law, his requirements, to declare his holiness that we can't come into his presence apart from a sacrifice and his grace and mercy and to show how good he is and invite the nations in. That's what Jerusalem was about. And Nehemiah is saying, I want to rebuild that. I want to be a part of restoring uh, that place. So here in Nehemiah chapter 2, we're calling it Taking Risks. Uh, last week, we just kind of introduced what was happening. This week, he's diving in. It's, it's beginning. Uh, I don't know how many of you here are risk takers or maybe you're risk averse, but here we see Nehemiah jumping in, taking risks, Um, The way I would state it is this way, is because the world is broken and because we're broken, uh, it's risky to follow God. So I believe that all of us are called to take risks. Uh, We risk different things, but it's risky for anyone to follow God because it's a broken world. We risk things that are dear to us, but I would say the trade is worth it because we get something that's much better when we follow Christ. So chapter two, we're going to just read the first few verses. Um, And then I'll pray, and we'll kind of get to the other verses as we move along. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine, and I gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. Very much afraid. Let me pray and ask God to teach us this morning. God, we pray for your help that you would be with us. Um, God, we recognize that we are also often afraid, and we pray that you would uh, empower us, that you would give us courage, that you would show us how to follow you. God, we pray that you would meet us in the midst of our fears, that your spirit would meet us here, that we would find encouragement in your word and uh, find help here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think uh, we all have different fears, right? So for, for what one person might think is a huge risk, another person might not think is a big deal. Uh, When you study phobias, you find that public speaking is one of the most common fears that people have. Um, That's actually one of my fears. I've just kind of beat it down over the years, right? I've suppressed it a little bit, but it's one of my fears as well. I hear it's a very common fear. Um, There's other fears like a fear of heights. Any of you have a fear of heights? Um, I have kind of a modified fear of heights, I would say. I'm not really afraid of heights. I'm never afraid when I go up in a tall building. I'm not usually afraid when I go in a plane unless it's really bad, but generally I'm not afraid of that. But I do have a fear of jumping out of a really high building. I don't know if you can relate to that. Or falling from a really high bridge or, you know, jumping out of a window. Like I have a fear of the falling process. So what happens for me is I'm not scared when I'm going up in a building, but I think I've seen too many action movies. So what will happen is I'll be up in a building 
And then I'll see like another ledge, you know, 100 feet over the ground. And I'll think, what happened if I had to jump out onto that ledge? You know, and I start like imagining it and I get all, I get the willies. My heart starts beating faster. I start to get nervous. So I, I would say I don't have a fear of heights, but I do have a fear of, of falling, right? Or jumping. Uh, and so I want to tell you a story about years ago, I went to a family camp with my kids. Uh, I was a family pastor at another church and we took folks to this family camp. It was actually the camp that we do the men's conference at and our teens go to, it's called Camp Tejas. It's a couple hours from here. And we brought a bunch of families down and so we were just kind of doing family stuff together. And, and at this camp, they have this big climbing wall and tower. Um, and so the kids, my, at the time, oldest two were five and six and they wanted to climb on the climbing wall. It's like, that's great. They're very brave. We'll, we'll do that. I can do that. Um, you know, so we put on the helmet, put on the harness, harness and we climb up the climbing wall. We have a lot of fun with that. I was proud of my kids. I think the, the two-year-old was napping or something while we're doing this. We're having a good time. Uh, but while we're doing that, there's a huge tower that the climbing wall is connected to. You know, it's like, it seems like 6,000 feet in the air. I think it's like 50 feet, maybe. But it's really tall. And there's a zip line where you jump off on a wire, you know, and fly away on this wire, right? And so the kids are watching other people do that. And they think, Daddy, can we do that? Can, can we do the zip line? And I'm thinking... Okay, I guess, I guess, you know, like that's the last thing in the world I want to do, but yes, I'll be a good dad and I'll take you up the wall. And I've, and I've done stuff like this before. I'm not like so scared of jumping off tall things I've never done it. I'd been in youth ministry, so I'd done high ropes courses and I'd done the thing where you jump off a pole and grab a bar. You know, I'd done all that crazy stuff before, but for the record, I really, really hated it when I did it, okay? So, but I'm thinking, okay, I'll be a good dad, I'll take him up. So we climb upstairs, we climb up a ladder, we climb up more stairs, we climb up another ladder, and we, we make it, you know, to 50 feet up in the air. And this is a, a big tower that is, it's actually swaying. The tower is actually moving in the wind, right? So that makes you feel a little more nervous. And so my kids and I are all up at the top of this 50-foot tower. It's swaying a little bit. Uh, the kids and I, we have our little helmets on, we have our harnesses on. We're ready to go, and the kids decide they don't want to do it. And you know what I'm thinking. I'm thinking like, okay, well, cool. All right, we don't have to do this. Great. And they're like, but, but Daddy, we want you to do it. <laughs> I'm like, great, okay. Um, and I think I said this already. I really, really hate falling from heights, right? Um, but at that moment, I had, this, I had this opportunity, right, to say, is it my pleasure or is it loving my kids It's more important in the moment, right? And so... I jumped, right? Because I just wanted to show them you can face your fears. You can do th- something that's scary. I didn't make them do it. I was already proud of them for having climbed the wall. And for the record, they're teenagers now. They've, they've done the zip line before. Um, they've done it since then. But in that moment, I chose to do something uncomfortable, risky for me, something that I hated that wasn't really fun uh, for them, just, just to show them that I love them, just to kind of set an example that you can face your fears. And as we look at Nehemiah here, what I want to stress is he's, he's challenging us to take risks. We see Nehemiah take risks, and I think there's this biblical concept of risk being good and right and true and an okay thing for us to pursue. What I want to distinguish for you from the beginning, though, is that God doesn't call us to take risks just for the sake of taking risks, okay? God calls us to take risks to love him and to love others. There's a point on the other side of it, right? Like, when it talks about Jesus facing the cross, it said he despised its shame for the joy set before him. There was a point on the other side of the cross. So Jesus risked everything for love. He didn't risk everything just to show, hey, I can take risks. So I think that's an important distinction 
for us to make as we look at Nehemiah and look at his example. One of the things that I think is important for us to think about also as we look at the example of Nehemiah and him recognizing the risk that he was facing is that we don't imitate what Old Testament characters do. We shouldn't read the, New Te- or the Old Testament and just go, I'm going to be like him. Because if you actually have read the Old Testament, they did a lot of bad things, okay? So we don't just do what they do. We try to watch their faith in a good God and imitate their faith. That's what we're challenged to in the New Testament with Abraham. He's the father of the faithful. He was a faithful man, but he did a lot of bad stuff. We want to imitate his faith, not all of his actions. So the same thing with Nehemiah. He's not necessarily a perfect man, and we're, we're supposed to be just like him, but we're supposed to see his faith. So, so let's look at this in verses 1 through 2. We see Nehemiah recognizing the risk up front. This is a risk he's taking if he wants to go back and rebuild uh, the city of God. It says, uh, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him. Now, the important thing is the moment when wine was before him. If you're going to say something challenging to someone, that's the time to say it, right? When wine was before him, when he's kicking back, when he's relaxed, when his heart is going to be happy. Um, There's also a little note here, though. This was in the month of Nisan. So this tells us when you compare calendar dates that what happened last week that we were looking at has been weeks and weeks of prayer and fasting. So this wasn't just the next day that he goes, he's like, oh, I'm heartbroken that the city's broken down. And then the next day he talks to the king about it. He'd been planning and praying and fasting. We saw last week he was grieving and crying and mourning over Jerusalem. It's a long period of time has passed. And so now the moment is right. There's wine before him. He says, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Remember, he's the cupbearer. He's the guy that tastes the wine first. Make sure it's not poisoned. Now he says, I had not been sad in his presence. I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. So two things here. One is you're just never supposed to be sad in front of an emperor, right? Uh, I don't know how many of you ever served in a great emperor, you know, with a worldwide kingdom, but that's just something you don't do. You don't You don't look sad. You don't look droopy. You keep your stuff together, right? The emperor is not your buddy. Uh, A lot of you, you know, you might work. This is just advice for you. If you get a new job, uh, your manager is not your best friend, okay? You just need to know that. Kind of carry yourself with some respect. Work hard. uh, Keep your stuff private. You have friends to share that with. You don't just dump all that on your manager. Times a thousand with the emperor of the Persian Empire, okay? He, he was going to just keep it together. It said he had never been sad in his presence before. He was a disciplined man. Remember last week I said he was a cupbearer, which meant he tasted the wine before he handed it to the emperor. And that meant he was a guy uh, with enough skill and enough strength to make sure that wine wasn't poisoned before he tasted it, right? So he's a James Bond, head of secret service kind of, kind of guy. A, a strong man who can hold himself together and say, I've never been sad in the king's presence. But now he's sad. And a question we don't really know the answer to is, was he sad on purpose or was he just overwhelmed, right? Did he, did he purpose it because he's such a man of discipline that he go, okay, I'm going to let my guard down and I'm going to let the king see my sadness. I, I would guess that this was on purpose. He was pushing the opportunity forward. But either way, the king notices. The king says, you're sad. What's going on? This is nothing but sadness of heart. And some linguistics guys, commentators would say, the sadness of heart could, could also be stretched to mean evil intent as well. We're not sure exactly what's meant, right? It, words have a range of meaning. So it could just mean sadness, or it could say, could be the king saying, this is, are you plotting a coup, right? Like, are you, are you planning my death here is, is maybe what the king is thinking. So 
So this is a very risky moment. First of all, because you just never get sad in front of the king, kind of a social dimension. But secondly, it might look like you're planning or plotting against him. So it's a very serious thing. And, and Nehemiah is recognizing the risk because he says, I was very much afraid. I was very much afraid. So this is a bold man, a strong man, a skilled man, and yet he was very much afraid. Remember, we saw this last week. He wasn't afraid to cry. And this week, he's not too stupid to be afraid. I would argue that being willing to face risks doesn't mean you're not afraid. Being brave doesn't mean you're not afraid. It means you're willing to face it because it's worth it. And it was worth it for Nehemiah. And I would say it's important that we recognize the risk. We recognize what we're getting ourselves into. I have a picture here, just as we think this through, of some kids dipping their toes in the water. Um, I want to just take a quick survey. I surveyed the morning service as well. How many of you, before you dive into a pool, you stick your toes in first to check the water? How many of you do that? Okay, maybe 50%, 30%. Okay, how many of you just dive in? Okay, and then the other third of you just don't, don't do swimming. Okay, <laughs> so we've got about a third that dip their toes, a third that dive in, and a third that just aquaphobia. That's cool, that's all right. Or hydrophobia, which is it? I don't know. Anyway, um, what, what I would argue here is that the people that dip their toes in they recognize the risk and they're gauging the risk and they're saying, how much risk is there, right? How cold is it before I dive in? But I would argue, you know, the, the people that the raise their hand and said, I just dive in the water, you know it's risky too, right? I mean, you know it might be cold, you just don't care. You're just going to dive in anyway. And so what I would say is we need to recognize the risk that we're facing. However you do that, you might be a toe dipper, you might be a diver, whatever it looks like, temperament aside, recognize the risk that you're facing when God calls you to do things in following him, right? God's called Nehemiah to rebuild the city. Again, remember, putting it in Old Testament context, God's plan to reach the nations. You read the Psalms, the the nations are always invited in to see who God is as his word is taught in the temple to recognize his goodness as again and again sacrifices are made and the word is taught and the people of God are worshiping God. This is a place to broadcast God's goodness and Nehemiah wants to see that work continue. Nehemiah wants to see God's name and fame again be broadcast from Jerusalem. So he's intent that this is something God's called him to do, but he also knows he could get killed for it. He also knows he could die, right? He could, at at the least, lose his position, right? Or at most, he could lose his life. He could lose his head. And I think we're in a very similar position in our walk with Christ, right? Like we're not an assistant to the emperor of the world, but we have a position that we might lose if we risk using it to serve God. Or you might have money that is at risk, right? If you say, you know, I want to spend this money for this mission or for this uh, ministry, but if I spend that, what happens if then I don't have any more money, right? Or then I can't feed myself or whatever it might be. Or you're worried that just it wouldn't be effective. I give all this money to this ministry and then I don't see any fruit come out of it. Right? There's always something at risk. Maybe you're risking your reputation. Right? Maybe you want, to, you want to say something about who God is. You want to invite others to follow him, but there's a reputation you have on the line. You might have a position. You might have money. You might have a place in life. You might have a gift or a skill that you believe God wants you to use to follow him, to spread his name and his fame, but you're afraid of the risk. I would say recognize the risk. Just write it down. I think a lot of times what we do is we just don't think about it because it's too uncomfortable. It's too scary, right? It's too close to home. You're kind of getting into my private space, God, and so let's just not think about it, and we divert, right? We do something else. We busy ourselves. 
we look at a screen, we play with a toy, we, we get ourselves away from thinking about it. I would say just recognize the risk. Recognize what it is that you're scared to give up. What are you scared to give up? I'd say write it down even. Just get out a piece of paper. You can burn it or throw it away if you want to. Keep it private. But, but start thinking this through. Say, God, what am I afraid to risk? Oftentimes those things that we're afraid to risk are both our greatest gifts and our greatest idols. Those things often go hand in hand. The, the, the thing that I'm greatest at is often the thing that I want to substitute for Jesus. Or the thing that I'm really most comfortable with is often a thing that I want to substitute for Jesus himself. And I'm saying, if I risk that, I won't have anything. I say, God, God calls us to spend things, not because he just wants us to be miserable, but he wants us to know him. And if we're holding on to secondary things with a death grip and we won't let go of them, we miss out on really honoring and worshiping God as our true Savior. So think about what it is for you. Is it money? Are you afraid to risk money? Is it control in your life? Are you afraid to risk control? Is it your reputation? Um, Is it your life? It's more rare for us here. Some of us might be in that position. Risking our, our life, it might be pleasure. You don't want to give something up that just is fun. And beware of what our culture says. And what our culture says is that in doing these things, that's where you get your identity. Pursuing this sin or pursuing this gift or pursuing this job, whatever it is. And I would say the Bible says that's not where your identity comes from. Your identity doesn't come from that pleasure or that skill or that job or that relationship. Your identity comes from God. Who, who adopts you through the cross, who says, I, I will forgive your sin by having your sins placed on Jesus on the cross, and I will give you the righteousness of Jesus by trusting him. You don't need these other things. Trust me, and I'll give you an identity. Don't look to these other things for your identity. Be willing to give them up. Again, we don't, we don't risk, we don't give up things just for the sake of doing that, but we do it for the joy that is before us, for following God, for loving him. The next thing that we see as we move through the text and as the story unfolds is that we see that Nehemiah is both praying and planning. I think we should imitate that as well. We should pray and we should plan. We should do both. Um, There's a tension in our life. Sometimes we're prayers and that looks like, ah, God, take care of it. I trust you. Sometimes it's called let go and let God. Have you all ever heard that before? And that can kind of turn into a weird passivity where you're just like, whatever, God's got it. I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to worry about it. And then there's planners, right? There's those of us that are really uptight and we do, 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 do. We keep doing things, planning things, writing things down. But we're not really trusting God. I said biblical Christianity is both in this inseparable union. It's both together, tightly woven together. I will trust God. I will also do everything he's called me to do. I will take the steps I need to take. So look at verse 3. Pray and plan. Verse 3, he says, I said to the king, let the king live forever. So first of all, you know he's thought about what he's going to say, right? That's the appropriate thing to say to an emperor. I don't know how your manager likes to be addressed, but this is what you say to an emperor. Let the king live forever. And then he says, why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Makes it personal. He's thought about what he's going to say. Makes it very personal. He doesn't start out all political like, hey, we want to rebuild this state that you destroyed a few years ago. No, he just says, hey, my my people are suffering. The place where my father's graves are, are in disarray. Everything's broken down. It's all fallen apart. 
Verse 4, then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. That's great. That's a great prayer, right? That's a little more like my prayer life. That's probably a one-second prayer, right? Um, I encourage you, last week we saw formal prayer. We saw last week that Nehemiah prayed the prayers of someone who's been reading Deuteronomy, someone who's been reading the Psalms. He had these biblically formed patterns of prayer. He had this long formal prayer where he was basically preaching, right? And so preachers have to be careful about this. Sometimes when we pray, we're actually preaching, but there's benefit to that in your daily life, in your habits of just uh, praying God's word back to him. We saw that last week. Nehemiah had these structured, formal prayers, and so people love to have prayer journals, and we love to read the Puritan prayers, and we love to pray hymns, and pray the Psalms, and pray our favorite scriptures. And I would say, do that. That is good, and rich, and shapes our prayers. And then here we see the other side of it. We just throws this quick prayer, this one-second prayer. Of It doesn't even tell us the words he said, but it was probably something like, God help me, right? In the moment, God help me, help me God. And so we can pray that way too. I, I quoted Paul Miller last week, my favorite book on prayer. Paul Miller says there's, there's times of life that are like scrubbing floors, and there's times of life that are holding hands, right? There's the hard work, it's kind of dirty, grubby, you don't really want to do it. It might be, require a lot of pain and thinking. And then there's the easy stuff, that just like everything's rosy, beautiful sunset, holding hands. Saying prayer can be like that as well. There's like casual, spontaneous prayer. Because of Jesus, we can approach God. Because of Jesus, he likes us. God likes us. You don't have to clean yourself up to come into his presence because of what Jesus accomplished for us. But also, there's benefit to the formal prayer. So here we see both sides of Nehemiah. He throws up a quick one-second prayer. God help me or something to that effect. And then he says, verse 5, And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. So he's got a very clear plan, a vision statement, you might call it here, like this is the objective. And then he goes into detail. He's been talking to people. He's been getting reports from scouts. He's been drawing stuff. He's been getting out Excel spreadsheets, right? He's been thinking through what it's going to take to accomplish this mission. I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Verse 6, and the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, again, another mark of an intimate setting, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. So now Nehemiah's like, yes, he's going to send me because he said, how long will it take, right? So that means his intention is to send me. So then he gives him more planning and he gives him more details. In verse 7, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and also a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. So again, we've got this, he prays, God help me, and then he's like, by the way, I've got all these files, here you go, I've thought it through, this is what it's going to take, I'm going to need these many timbers, I'm going to need guys to go with me, I'm going to need some armed escorts, I'm going to need a house, we're going to need to rebuild the, the gate. He's got all these plans thought through. He's not just praying and praying and praying and not doing anything, he's doing stuff. Do you see that? We, we often run to our extremes of, I'm going to be the one that does, or I'm going to be the one that trusts and prays. To walk faithfully with God is to do both. The parable of the talents is a great parable in Matthew 25, but it fleshes this out where it shows us the people that spend their talents, that invest them, are the ones that trust the master. 
the one that buries his talent, that doesn't do, that doesn't plan, is the one that thinks that God is unfair and horrible. If you think God is good and gracious and kind and generous to you, you'll spend your life. You'll use it. But if you think God is unfair and he's holding out on you, that's, that's a sign that you're living as an orphan and not as a son or a daughter of God. And you're saying, I can't trust you, God. I've got to protect. I've got to hoard. I've got to wall myself off from life. But if you trust him, you'll invest. If you trust him, you'll spend. So, so here we see praying and planning, praying and planning. He has all these detailed plans. And then he does a, a wraparound. He, he ends this section. Verse 8, he says, And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. The good hand of my God was upon me. That's the ability to see that God is sovereignly working by his grace through my human actions. And those things go together. It's not just God is sovereign, so I don't do anything. And it's not just I've got to do it all because I'm on my own. It's God is sovereign and gracious and good, so I better do. I better plan. I better act. And Nehemiah joins those two things together. Um, Again, I challenge you to make this practical. Pray and plan. I think our congregation, uh, I know a lot of you are new because we've always got a lot of new folks, but I think our personality leans towards, I trust you, God. I'm not going to write anything down. We we tend towards that a little bit with our spiritual life. I know y'all aren't that way in your professional life, right? But in our spiritual life, we tend to be like, okay, God, you're good. Whatever. Let me know if you want me to do something. Otherwise, I'm just going to kind of putter along with my normal life. I would say we want to plan. We want to ask God hard questions. God, what do you want me to do? I've only got this many years left if I live to the average age. How do you want me to invest these years? So I have a picture here of a calendar. We should write it down. We should budget our money. We should budget our time. We should budget out our goals. We should write down, God, I think you want me to do this. So for Nehemiah, he said, God's work has been destroyed and I'm in a position and I've got the skills that I can help rebuild it. So I think God wants me to spend my position, my influence and my money and my life to rebuild God's work in the world. I would say he wants us to do the same. What's a little carved out piece of his kingdom in your sphere of influence that God wants you to do that with? What money do you have? What time do you have? What skills do you have to invest in kingdom work? And in the Old Testament, it was uh, his broadcast system was working through Jerusalem. He was spreading his name and fame there. It was centrally located. Now his plan is that disciples would spread all over the world, and that we would manifest God's goodness in our homes and neighborhoods and lives and where we work, that we would spread the name and fame of Jesus in our individual lives. The question is, how are you going to do it? And I challenge you to, to pray and plan. Go ahead and make some plans. Plans aren't perfect, right? One of my favorite military phrases I learned is no battle plan survives first contact with the enemy. Have y'all ever heard that one before? Nobody. Wow, okay. We usually have some military folks in here. No, okay, one of you. Got it. All right. No battle plan survives first contact with the enemy. That doesn't mean don't plan, right? That means plan and pray, knowing that you're going to have to replan and make adjustments along the way. So, so make some plans. Pray. Say, God, what would you have me to do? Like the little boy with his loaves and fishes. Here you go. This is what I got. What do you want to do with it? B- bring what you have before God. Say, God, this is the time I have. This is the, the means I have. These are the things that I have. These are the resources that I have. And offer them to him to be used for his glory. 
Start, start planning it out. If you want to pray more as a family, talk to your spouse and say, hey, how, how can we do this? Let's do it. Let's put it on the calendar. If you want to read the Bible more as a family, l- let's think this through. Let's do this. If you want to serve in a particular ministry, go ahead and write something down. Go ahead and call somebody. Go ahead and start making plans. Start moving in that direction and pray that God's good hand would be upon you. The last thing we see is him engaging the problem. So again, this is first contact with the enemy. He begins to engage the problem. He begins to now effect those plans. So we'll pick this up in verse 9, engaging the problem. Verse 9, then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Uh, Beyond the river was basically uh, the area of Israel. It was just kind of like a, a general name they used for stuff outside of Uh, the river there in the Persian Empire. I gave him the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen, right? So he was part of his plan. He had officials with him to help him, to guard him, to make sure people knew he wasn't uh, setting up a coup or rebelling against the governor or the the king, but that this was part of the king's permission. And then in verse 10 it says, But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. I just want to clarify quickly, because we're going to hit this again later, um, that, that this is not race against race. They would use racial designations because they were tribal people, but this was faith against faith. Does that make sense? So they would use racial de- designation to talk about the faith of the people of Israel. But if you study the Old Testament, even if you just look at Jesus' genealogy, Jesus' family members in the Gospels, it, it's very clear that the people of Israel were a mixed race. They were people of every tongue and tribe that had a like faith in the God of the Old Testament. So I just want to clarify that because sometimes that can be a, a red flag to us. Oh, okay, you know, this race is against that race. Well, no, it's more like this tribe chief is against that tribe chief. And actually, Tobiah is a Jewish name. So it's, it looks like a Jewish guy was now chief of these Ammonites, and he was against the welfare of Israel. Verse 11, so I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. He's probably having meetings with people, probably talking to his heads and his leaders. Verse 12, then I rose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered the valley gate. And so I returned. So basically, we just have him inspecting the wall, touring the city, checking it out. This reminds me in Acts chapter 17, uh, when Paul is in Athens, and he just tours the city before he preaches the gospel to them. He goes and he checks out the idolatry of that city, and he says, okay, this is the idolatry of that city. It breaks his heart, and it gives him an informed way to then preach the gospel to them. So he's touring the city. It says, verse 16, the officials didn't know where I'd gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. Let us rise up and build. I love that. So he's now won them over to his side. Let us rise up and build. So they strengthen their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite servant, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, 
They jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I uh, replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. So he's already risked it with the king, right? He was very much afraid. He realized he could lose his life. He could lose his position. And it's happening all over again. It's not like you just have one big faith moment in your life and you say, all right, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. Done. Now the rest of life is going to be easy. That's not really how it works, I'm afraid to say. Um, I wish I could tell you that if you decide today to follow Jesus, that everything will be rosy and perfect, but it just won't. There are plenty of other churches that will tell you that in town that you could try out. But I would say, God is saying, no, there's still things to risk. There's still more things to risk, and he has to bow up to these leaders that are going to try to kill him if they can, that are against the work, and he's going to say, you have no right to this. You better stand down. You better back off. We're going to do this. He has to continue to be uh, engaging the problem, taking risks. I have a picture here as I was thinking about the people coming around Nehemiah and saying, let us, let us rebuild. Let us do this. They all got excited. And I found a picture of guys cheering. Because um, when I have, like when I have a staff meeting or we have a leaders meeting, when I say, this is, this is the plan I think God has for us for this year, we usually don't have everybody in the crowd just stand up and start cheering. Let us do it, right? That's just not usually the response that people have. It's not really common in our culture. But we do that in some places in our culture, right? This would be a sporting event if you see the picture here. I don't know what it is. I just found, I just Googled cheer, right? Or cheering crowd. And I found this picture of people cheering. And I think it's really cool that they do cheer him. And they said, let us rise up and build. They were excited. But what I want you to see here is that the way the text unfolds this, it doesn't seem that he won them over because he was so charming. It doesn't seem, as a matter of fact, we'll find out later that Nehemiah is kind of grumpy, right? Um, It doesn't seem that he just wooed them, but what we see is careful praying and planning and then a willingness to tackle the problem head on. A willingness to charge what is wrong and what is broken in the world, and everybody cheers. Everybody's like, all right, let's do this. We want to go with you. We want to follow you, Nehemiah. We want to help you rebuild. And so my, my question for you is, in what ways do you want to engage the problems in this world, right? So again, this is a little bit metaphorical, but here the people of God functioned by broadcasting through Mount Zion, Jerusalem, the Temple Mount. They broadcast Jesus' name and fame, pre-Jesus, God's name and fame. That's not exactly how it works now. How How are we going to do it? How are you going to be faithful? In the Old Testament, the plan was working through the Temple. In the New Testament, Jesus gives us the Great Commission. He says, go and make disciples of everyone around you. Spread my name and fame to every circle of influence you have. Teach people to obey my commandments. Teach people that they can trust me, that I'm good, that they can follow me, that they can give up their pleasures and, and pursue me, and it's, it's going to be good. How are you going to do that? That's my question. Again, remember, God's point is not for you to just take risk for the sake of taking risks. His point is that we'd be willing to take risks because we love those around us. 1 Corinthians 13 talks about love, and it says, uh, if I give up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I'm nothing. And that's about the ultimate risk, right? Being a martyr, dying. And Paul says, if I'm willing to die, but I, I don't actually love people, it's worthless. It's all about me. 
So the point here in the text is, what are the risks you're willing to engage because you love God and you love others and you love the world and you want God's goodness to be shared with them? What are those risks that you're willing to take? As we think about what God was doing in the Old Testament and what he's doing in the New, I was reminded of how Jesus told people in his day that if they tore down the temple, in three days he would rebuild it. And of course they were fixated on the physical temple and they were freaked out, you know, this is, you can't do that and that's blasphemous. And they were angry at him and they also thought he was crazy. But Jesus was talking about himself because Jesus is the place now where we meet God. Jesus is the place where God is revealed, where his name and fame is broadcast to the world. Jesus is the place where God comes down and even though he's holy, comes through his perfect sacrifice to meet us because our sins were paid for on the cross and the righteousness of Christ is given to us so that God sees us as his very own children through Christ. So Jesus is the place now where God comes down in his temple and broadcasts who he is to the world. My question is, what risks is he asking us to take to share him with others? Let me pray for us and then we'll close in a final song in communion together. God, I thank you that you love us. And I thank you that you proved your love to us through the cross. You proved that you love us by giving your life for us. And so God, I pray that you would give us uh, a willingness to follow you, to trust that you are good. Help us to take those risks. We thank you for your kindness, for your grace, and we pray that you would make us a people that take risks, not just for the sake of taking risks, but to love others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.